Chapter thirty seven of the Grell Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Grell Mystery by Frank Froust. Chapter thirty seven. The game of faro is one that makes no strenuous demands on the skills of the players. It is chance pure and simple, and therein lies its fascination. While baccarat or chemin de fer are almost invariably games to be most in favour when the police raid a gambling house in the West End, at the other side of the town it is invariably discovered that faro holds first place in the affections of gamblers. In its simplest form it is merely betting on the turn of each card throughout a pack. Although it was broad daylight, the room in which the operations took place was shuttered and had the blinds drawn. A three-light gasolier beat down on a big table in the centre of the room, round three sides of which were ranged a dozen or fifteen men eagerly intent on the operations of the banker. A heavy-jowled man with overhanging black eyebrows, he was seated in a half-circle cut into the centre of one side of the table. In front of him was a bright steel box, sufficiently large to contain a pack of cards, with the face of the top card discernible at an opening at the top. The cards were pressed upwards in the box by springs, and at the side of a narrow opening allowed the operator to push the cards out one at a time, thus disclosing the faces of those underneath and deciding the bets. On each side of the box were the discarded winning and losing cards, and on the dealer's left a tray which served the purpose of a till in receiving or paying out money. A cloth with painted representations of the thirteen cards of a suit was pinned to the table nearest to the players, and they placed stakes on the cards they fancied would next be disclosed. Twice the box would click out cards amid a dead silence. Those who had staked out money on the first card disclosed won, those who had staked on the second lost. There was often dead silence while the turn was being made, save for the click of a marker shown on the wall, and guarded by a thick-set little man with red hair, fierce eyes, and an enormous chest. But directly afterwards Babel would break out to be sternly quelled by the heavy-jowled man. "'I had set on to nine. Say that king was coppered. I ought to have split it.' The jargons of all the world met and crossed at such time. It was rarely that there arose a serious quarrel, for Keller and his myrmidons had a swift way of dealing with malcontents. When a man became troublesome, the fierce-eyed little marker with the big chest would tap him on the shoulder. "'That's enough, you,' he would say menacingly. If the warning were not sufficient, the left hand of the little man would drop to his jacket pocket, and when it emerged it would be decorated with a heavy brass knuckle-duster. It took but one blow to make a man lose all interest in the game, and thereafter he would be handed over to the tender mercies of Jim, a giant of a doorkeeper, who after dark would drop him into the street at some convenient moment, with a savage warning to keep his mouth shut, lest a worse thing befall him. This was the place Heldon Foyle had made up his mind to enter single-handed, a place in which the precautions against surprise were so complete that every article which could be identified as a gambling implement was made of material which could be readily burnt or soluble at a temperature lower than that of boiling water. A big saucepan was continually simmering on the fire so that the implements could be dropped in it at a second's notice. But Heldon Foyle had hopes. At the worst he could only fail. He returned to Scotland Yard and shut himself up for twenty minutes in the make-up room. When he reached Smike Street again he was no longer the spruce, upright, well-dressed official. A grimy cap covered tousled hair. His face was strained, his eyes bloodshot, and his moustache combed out raggedly. A set of greasy mechanics overalls had been drawn over his own clothes. He walked uncertainly. Green and the local inspector saw him reel past the public-house in which they still remained, as affording an excuse to be near the spot, and reel up Smike Street. Towards the end he appeared confused and gravely inspected several houses before approaching the gambling joint. He rapped on the door with his knuckles, ignoring both the knocker and the bell. It opened a few inches wide, enough for the scowling face of Jim, the doorkeeper, to appear in the aperture. 
Supporting himself with one hand on the doorpost, Foyle leered amiably at the Cerberus. "'Hello, old sport. I want to come in. Open the door, can't you?' "'Get out of it, you drunken swab. You don't live here,' said Jim, taking stock of the drunken intruder and coming to a quick decision. The door slammed. Foyle beat a tattoo on the panels with his hands, swaying perilously to and fro the while. Again the door opened the cautious six inches, and Jim's face was not pleasant to look on as he swore at the disturber. "'That's all right, old sport,' hiccuped Foyle. "'I want to come in. A Bill Reed told me if I wanted <coughs> game I was to come here. You know old Bill Reed,' this almost pleadingly. "'He'll tell you I'm all right, eh?' The doorkeeper of the gaming-house holds an onerous responsibility. On him depends the safety of the gamblers from interference by the representatives of law and order. Jim's suspicions were lulled by Foyle's quite obvious drunkenness. Nevertheless, a drunken man who had apparently been told of the place was a danger so long as he remained clamouring for admittance on the step. Jim tried tact. "'There's nothing doing now,' he explained. "'You go away and come back tonight. It'll be a good game, then.' "'That's a lie,' said Foyle, with an assumption of drunken gravity. "'Old Bill Reedy says to me, he says—' But Jim had lost the remainder of his small stock of patience. He jerked the door again in Foyle's face, pulled off the chain and leapt out, his intention of throwing the other into the street, and so ending the argument once for all, written on every line of his stalwart figure. That was his programme. But Foyle had also his programme. He had got the door open. All that remained between him and the entrance was the muscular figure of Jim. He suddenly became sober. The doorkeeper's hand grasping at his collar clutched empty air. The detective's head dropped. Jim was met halfway by a short charge, and Foyle's shoulder caught him in the chest. Both men were forced by the momentum of the charge back through the open door and fell in a heap just within. At ordinary times the two would have been fairly evenly matched. Both were big men, though the doorkeeper had slightly the advantage in size. He had, however, been taken by surprise, and received no opportunity to utter more than a stifled oath before his breath was taken away. Inside the house Foyle stood on no ceremony in order to silence his opponent before those within could be alarmed. He had fallen on top of Jim. Pressing down on him with head and knee, he swung his right fist twice. Jim gave a grunt and his head rocked loosely on his neck. He had, in the vernacular of the ring, been put to sleep. The effects of a knockout blow, however deftly administered, do not last long. The detective's first move was to close the street door, leaving the bolts and chains undone, so that it was fastened merely by the catches of the Yale locks. Then he whipped a handkerchief about the unconscious man's mouth, and, silently dragging him to a sitting posture, handcuffed his wrists beneath his knees, so that he was trussed in the position schoolboys adopt for cock-fighting. He surveyed his handiwork critically, and a new idea occurring to him, unlaced the man's boots, and, taking them off, tied the laces round the ankles. That would prevent the man rattling his boots on the floor when he came to, and so have given the alarm. The inner door had been left open by Jim, a lucky circumstance for Foyle, as otherwise he would have been at a loss, for it was of stout oak, and he must have made considerable noise in forcing it. Yet he did not make any attempt to soften his footsteps as he climbed the stairs. He hoped to be taken as an ordinary client long enough, at any rate, to discover the whereabouts of Ivan. Once that was achieved, he was reckless as to his identity becoming known. He needed no guide to the right door, for the clink of money and the exclamations of many voices guided him. He threw it open and entered the fairy room with quiet assurance. Beyond a quick glance from Keller, no one took any notice of him. They took it for granted that Jim had gone into his bona fides, and that he was square. He took up a position at the end of the table nearest the door, and apparently watched the game before staking. In reality, he was studying the faces of the players. He was uncertain whether he would find Ivan there, but he had calculated that the Russian would at least be watching, if not taking a hand, if only as a means of passing the time during his voluntary imprisonment. And he was right. Seated at the table two or three paces away was the Russian, lost to all save the turn of the card. 
Boyle bent over and staked a coin. At the same moment Ivan's eyes met his in puzzled recognition. There was a crash, and the gambler sprang up, overturning his chair. His hand was outstretched, the finger pointing at the detective. "'That man! How did he get in here?' he cried, with something like alarm. End of chapter 37